Welcome to the Vox Pop, a podcast of Missio Day Church. At Missio Day, we believe that everyone has a story worth sharing, and this podcast gives voice to those stories. I'm Brian. And I'm Peter. And we're your hosts. Welcome to the Vox Pop. Well, we're, I think we're getting a rhythm now. This will be episode six when it airs, and uh, it's been a lot of fun so far. Have you enjoyed doing a podcast, Peter? I have so enjoyed it. I love hearing your stories, and it is so encouraging to know that this Christian walk has uh, so many different ways it can uh, play out in different people's lives, and that, that Jesus pursues us regardless of our differences, but also that we have so much in common. And yeah. it has been just a joy to hear some stories from people that I don't know incredibly well. Yeah. But yet I found so much in common with them. I'm hearing as well just from different members of the church who've been listening and have been really encouraged just in their faith walk um, by the stories that we're hearing and also just learning more about you know other members and feeling like, oh, I know them now, even though I haven't maybe spent a lot of time with them. And so... I think it's been a blast, and uh, we've gotten nothing but but good feedback so far. So, mm-hmm. particularly during this time when it's easy to feel isolated, it's for it's sure been great to be able to listen to someone tell their story. That's right. I've loved that, yeah. and really in a in a. I know I'm have a different perspective because I'm in the room, but to have someone's story, in, they're telling their testimony in kind of an intimate way. Yeah, like to really get to know somebody and people have been so vulnerable and I've been so thankful for that. Well, and it gives, it gives people who are part of the church an opportunity to have that sense of, of, of being in the room, even though they can't be, I mean, we mm-hmm. can't have, you know, hundreds of you in the room and this isn't, we don't have the time on a Sunday, you know, to share a 40 minute story, you know, testimony. Uh, and yet this gives people that, that, opportunity to be like they were sitting next to one of us, six feet apart, of course, mm-hmm. um, and and to hear that in such an intimate way, even though they can't physically be here. So we've been super thankful for y'all's, for you listening and uh, for those that have shared. If you are interested in being a guest on one of our episodes of the Vox Pop, how can they get a hold of us, Peter? They can email voxpop at mdcashville.org. That's V-O-X-P-O-P at mdcashville.org. That's right. And that'll, well, that'll email will come to one of us and we'll uh, we'll get back to you and get you scheduled. Mm-hmm. And uh, just so y'all know, the plan is to do multiple seasons of the Vox Pop. And the first season will be 12 episodes. And we're looking for a few more people to round out the 12. And then we will record the second season yeah, we'll take a, little, fall. take a little summer hiatus and then mm-hmm. uh, then we'll get back to it in the fall as well. So Yeah, so we want to interview and hear the stories from an incredibly wide array of people. That's right. We want everyone to be known by everyone else in the congregation so we can live life as a family. That's right. Well, and that's why we say, right, everyone, everyone, and we really mean it, has a story worth sharing. Mm-hmm. And so we, we want to give voice to those stories. That's why we're doing this. So thanks for listening, y'all. Well, we're excited to have on the show today, Doug and Lisa Jernigan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Now, Lisa, you just returned recently from Mount Sinai Hospital where you served, I believe, with Samaritan's Purse um, during COVID yes. crisis. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, our team did not serve in the tents that you saw on the news. 
what we did was we opened a floor in Beth Israel Hospital, opened an entire ward wow. of, I think, maxed out at 24 beds. Okay. So that the rest of Mount Sinai system could weed out all their COVID patients and send them someplace else so that they could free some of their floors of COVID patients and go back to their regular sort of business. Beth Israel Hospital had been scheduled, I believe, to actually be demolished Oh, really? at some point this year. But they did a great job of quickly reopening it, getting it ready for use. It kind of reminded me of the hospital I used to work in, in Tallahassee, actually, because that they were about the same vintage. Except in Tallahassee, we didn't have any more four-bed wards but we worked with some four bed wards up there. Okay. But so we would we were a what you call a cohorted unit where you everybody on the floor has covid and you dress in once. You don't have to keep going in and out and in and out and in and out of the protective gear. Gotcha. So around here obviously there are cases but it nowhere nearly as severely as New York has seen. Give us a sense of what you saw up there and kind of what that experience was like. Well the most immediate thing that I saw up there was that there was no traffic. <laughs> and this is New York City. Right. Uh, and I've never really been to New York City before, but I could cross the street at the crosswalk. I could jaywalk. I could pretty much walk anywhere. And the most likely thing to hit me would be a bicycle delivering food somewhere. Mm. It, so it was empty. Times Square, all the signs were up, all the flashing lights were going, and they all said, we hope you don't see this unless you're a healthcare worker. Wow. Or another essential person, which was really interesting. The hospital itself just seemed like it was a little under siege. You know, the workers were tired, but they were the nicest people. Mm. They all got us in there to work very, very quickly, worked our, worked our way through all the paperwork, which I don't know if you've ever applied for privileges at a hospital, but it's not a quick process. They got that done very quickly. I think I'd been in town two hours oh, wow. when I had privileges at the hospital. It took us less than 20 minutes to get to our hotel from the airport, which is unheard of. Mm-hmm. So we started right after that with all the orientation process. And soon enough, after two days of learning how to use the computer, <laughs> then we started seeing patients. The floor, the first time I went to it, didn't have any curtains between the beds. Some of the rooms didn't have beds. All of the special walls to keep foreigners out and people who, you know, weren't supposed to be there because they weren't dressed up right. Uh, None of that was there. And within 48 hours, it was all there. Mm. And some of that Samaritan's Purse put up. They have a very good team. It's called the WASH team, which is water and sanitation and hygiene, I think. Okay. But they did a great job of sealing the whole place off so that you could dress in once and not have to keep going in and out of gear. So we got there, and I worked the night shift. I haven't done that in (laughs) I don't know how long. So I worked 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Wow. How much time did you spend up there? I was there about three weeks. So I was supposed to be there four, but the census started dropping down, and it got to the point where Mount Sinai could actually, you know, handle what they had. So we first condensed to one floor. We had two floors that were run by Samaritan's Purse, and then, and then some other people came in to work also, which allowed me to go home a little early. Okay. Now you go as a physician to care for people physically, but you also go as a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, talk a little bit about what that experience is like as a believer 
trying to minister to people while you're taking care of their physical needs as well? Well, in New York specifically, we were working in a Jewish hospital, and that didn't seem to matter at all. Mm. Uh, it, the staff was wonderful to us. They were very receptive to the fact that we were working with a Christian organization. Many of the staff were believers and loved working with us. So that was really a good thing mm-hmm. and unexpected because you hear all these things about New York, you know, and right. they just weren't true. And the patients themselves were very open being in a Jewish hospital and being in sort of a power imbalance relationship as mm. a physician with a very sick person. You have to be kind of careful. Yeah. Um, but they, the patients would ask us to pray with them. They would ask for Bibles. Of course, we could do both of those things. Many of our patients were not English-speaking. Many of them were from, well, we had some Ukrainians. We had some Haitians. We had people from many different Spanish-speaking countries. So that made it a little challenging at times. But fortunately, I speak some Spanish. But our nursing staff was astounding. They were the ones who did the majority of the witnessing Mm things because they were always in the patient's rooms just in and out and in and out and in and out all the time much more than I was so so they did a lot of that particularly one very interesting lady from New York not from New York City but from upstate who just knew the culture and was very effective thank you what kind of physical needs can you help out with with a COVID patient Uh, me personally or any just generally just generally well they're stuck at home or they're stuck in the hospital and they're all by themselves. So anything you can do to increase their social interaction without tiring them out mm-hmm. is going to be helpful. You can get their groceries. You can make sure that someone mows their lawn. All kinds of anything that you can think of. One thing you need to know about COVID patients is all the ones I saw at least were absolutely fatigued for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, walking 10 feet, heart rate goes to 150, they can't breathe, they just feel terrible. And so they have no energy to do anything. So anything that needs doing that requires walking around would be helpful. Also, there's the being sick and not having enough energy to even entertain yourself. Mm. I mean, our ward had no televisions, and it almost looked like nobody cared. Mm. Nobody really complained of boredom until they were ready to be discharged. Uh, (laughs) If they started complaining of boredom, it was time to go because you could almost bet when they had enough energy to be bored, you could walk them down the hall and they wouldn't desaturate and they could go home. Wow. So those kinds of things. Based on your experience as a physician, you know, what was different about COVID patients than, than other illnesses you've treated in the past? I don't know anything about COVID. That made it much harder. Sure. Nobody knew anything about COVID. Right. The protocol changed at least twice while we were there. And, you know, everybody on our team and everybody in the hospital in general and physicians and nurses and hospital staffs everywhere, that's been a, a challenge with mm-hmm. COVID is that the information is all new. And people say, well, do you know what you're doing? And the answer is, no, not really. We're extrapolating from other things that we do know how to do. We right. know how to treat adult respiratory distress syndrome. We know how to treat pneumonia. We know how to treat cytokine storm. All of those things happen in COVID to at least some degree. 
So we know how to treat all of those. We know how to treat blood clots. So we get to kind of try all of those things. And there's some data coming out now where some things may look better than others, but I really don't think the answers to like what's the best way to treat Mm -hmm. it are going to be really nailed down for some time even now. There's the thing that you told me um, about their affect Mm. as a physician for, you know, that you've been for decades and get a sense of how people feel. And you you said that was different. Yeah. The affect of the patient, just how they look when they even look at you. These people just almost seem to not care. Mm. Sometimes when, when they were very anxious and having a hard time breathing, that was the most emotion you would see from them. But most of them just looked blank mm. for quite some time. Uh, and some of that may have been cultural. They were typically from very stoic sorts mm-hmm. of cultures. But some of it seemed to go through all the different cultures that we had, some which are more demonstrative mm-hmm. and others that are more quiet. But they were just very quiet. Typically, they were could sit there staring into space for hours between sleeping, and it didn't seem to bother them at all. Just completely drained of energy. Completely and drained. Almost almost livelihood. I, I said they were limp. You mm. know, just seemed limp. Like when you have a bad flu and you yeah. just feel like... I can't get up. I don't Mm -hmm. want to move. It hurts to even think about moving. Yeah. They kind of looked like that. Thank you. So Lisa, originally, what drew you to the field of medicine? Well, when I went to college, I was going to be a forest ranger. So naturally, you became a doctor. (laughs) Absolutely. What happened was I wanted to leave Tallahassee, but my parents wanted me to go to school in Tallahassee for economic reasons, which I can certainly understand. Mm -hmm. So I had to find a major that they didn't have in Tallahassee. And I was a Girl Scout, and I liked camping, so I thought, I'll be a forest ranger. So I said, I'm going to have a degree in forestry, which meant I had to go to the University of Florida. So off I went. I took a forestry class and quickly became a pre-med student. So I was not ready to wear a tractor cap (laughs) (laughs) 24-7. And I discovered that it would probably be more fun taking care of people than trees because trees don't talk to you. Mm. So, and I, I didn't have much example of a physician. I, I mean, I had a physician when I was a kid who I almost never saw, and I didn't personally know any physicians. So I'm really not sure where the idea came from that, oh gosh, I should go to med school. But it seemed, it seemed like it would be something that would be interesting and that I could probably learn to do. So you must have had some sort of strength academically in order to succeed and eventually go to med school and thrive and become a doctor. I was a studious nerd child. So yes, of course, (laughs) (laughs) I took all the courses and, you know, I came out of high school thinking that I was brilliant. Yeah. It took about a quarter of college to convince me that in fact, that wasn't the case, but I um, made it through in any case. Organic chemistry was a challenge. It's a beast. It is. I tell uh, uh, Christina that what I learned in organic chemistry was how to draw hexagons, and that's basically it. <laughs> well, it's a useful skill. Yeah. Well, that's what I can remember from. I'm sure I learned more than that, but yes, that's what I know now. Also, don't touch it if you're not sure what it is, because <laughs> it may change the color of your skin for a good long time. <laughs> 
So were you born and raised in Tallahassee then? I was. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about your childhood? Well, I am from a family with two left brain scientific mathematical parents. I have an older brother and an identical twin sister. Another twin. Another yeah, twin yeah, on the is... podcast. Surprise twin. We didn't know. No. Ah. Fantastic. They're all over the place. Apparently. They're doubling all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so my family was very education-oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, my father worked for the university. He was not a PhD, but he did training in disaster preparedness. That's appropriate, giving given the circumstances. Yes, he was quite good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mother worked for the Department of Education at the, for the state of Florida. So very education-oriented, very important that you go to school, get good grades, go to college, all of that. So all of us did go to college. My brother became an engineer, and my sister got a degree in art history and then did the things you usually do with a degree in art history. She went to nursing school so <laughs> after that. But... But, you know, so everybody got educated. My parents were not very social. A new neighbor came to our door once and to introduce themselves, and my mother promptly said to them, well, you know, the thing we like about this neighborhood is that everyone leaves everyone else alone. Have a nice day and shut the door. <laughs> Which was interesting. Even then, I realized that was kind of a strange answer. But So they didn't belong to a church. They weren't believers. And so, you know, I read a lot of books. As a, as a consequence, and that really turned out to be very helpful later on. Uh, I could read pretty quickly if it was non-technical. So when did, when did faith become part of your journey, Lisa? Well, somewhere around the age of 10, I realized there was a God. I don't know how I realized it. I was lying in my bed one night, and then it was like, there's a God. So I just knew that. And then once I got to college, was surrounded in my first freshman chemistry lab class, by a bunch of Christians, and my first class that I took in college, other than chemistry, was a class called Hebrew Scriptures. I was trying to get out of my humanities requirement. That was four hours. I could finish my humanities requirement and be done with it, and didn't bother me a bit that it was a senior-level class until I started taking it, of course. (laughs) So read the entire Old Testament. And I believe at this point, looking back on it, that the professor was a believer because he was very faithful to reference all of the things that pointed to Jesus. Okay. The code word was, Christians believe that, Mm -hmm. that he did that in a fairly friendly manner and didn't deconstruct that, didn't say, but I think they're wrong because, or any of that. Right. So by the time we got to Isaiah, I was pretty well ready to agree with Isaiah that we needed somebody. Mm Mm-hmm like Jesus. And it was pretty obvious to me that all of the things that I saw around me in the world were well explained and described in the Old Testament. The way people acted, the way they acted toward one another, the things that motivated them, all of those things seemed to be very obvious in the Old Testament. And it got more and more and more hopeless as the Old Testament went on. And then there's Isaiah Mm -hmm. says, there is one coming. Right. So Isaiah 53. So mm-hmm. that was a great, a great hope to me. And then there were all these Christians right around me who somehow we managed to get into conversations. I never had the sense that they were trying 
to get me into those conversations that just happened. Yeah. So didn't take long from there. So you went to school at University of Florida, mm-hmm. Gainesville. Yes. Is that where you went to med school as well? No, I went to the University of South Florida okay. in Tampa. Mm-hmm. I kept moving south until, until the state got Tampa. Fl- That's your hometown. Yeah. That's my hometown. Until the state got really flat, and then yeah. I had to move back north. Yeah. You know, so it gets flat in a hurry. It does. As it turns out. Yeah. So University of South Florida was the first school that interviewed me, and they were the first one to send me an acceptance. And back in those days, if someone gave you a med school acceptance, you didn't say, oh, I think I'll wait and see if someone else will yeah. No, you just went wherever they <laughs> you got accepted. Uh, and that worked out fine for me. It was a good place to go. So talk us through the next few years after med school. Yeah, med school is mostly a blank mm-hmm. in your memory because you don't ever sleep. Yeah. So then I came back to Tallahassee to do my residency in family medicine. And went out into private practice for six years or so. Then went back to teach at the family medicine residency as a faculty member. They were looking for someone to lead international medical trips. And since I'd been doing a fair amount of that, they wanted to know if I wanted to be on faculty. I did. That was good. And then in 2003... I met this guy named Doug, and we dated for six months, and then we got engaged, and we got married in 2004. And then after that, it was very providential. Not only is he a wonderful man, he was also very patient with my aging parents and their house of hoarderness that needed cleaning constantly. And so he carried more tons of things out of my parents' house Mm. and to the dump than I can describe. And... So we kind of did my parents' end-of-life care. Mm -hmm. And once both of my parents had died, we had bought a house up here in 2011, shortly before my father died. And after my mom died and we got her estate settled and all of that, then he said, it's time to remodel the house. And here we are. (laughs) Doug joins us in studio here. I want to hear a little bit from you about how you swept this lady off her feet How'd you guys meet, and what was that uh, experience all about? Well, so to be truthful, we first met in a bar. Um, I was playing playing music, uh, performing at the bar, and a friend of mine who happens to be a uh, psychologist, he joined me, and so we were playing there every every weekend for a while. And at one point, Rick invited the people who worked with him in his office. This is when Lisa was uh, with the group. And Lisa came, and I met her. You know, she she came up and talked to Rick and said hi to me, had a little conversation. And let's see, about a year later, I was, I worked for, I did construction work for a construction company, but every now and then I'd do work on the side. Mm-hmm. And Lisa was wanting to get her kitchen remodeled. And um, so Rick said, well, give Doug a call. So so I remodeled her kitchen. That was the last side job I ever did because it <laughs> took so long. Not, not, <laughs> the main problem was her um, brother-in-law was an electrician, and he just took forever to get his part done. Of course, I was married at, at this time, and... Um, so we were we were acquaintances and mm-hmm. we were friends. We would see Lisa worked at the hospital. My construction work was 
at the hospital. I worked, the only place I ever worked almost for my construction company was this particular hospital remodeling. Hmm. So. Because hospitals are constantly remodeling. That's the one thing I've learned. They, <laughs> have, to, they just have, have to. to keep upgrading. Yeah. Anyway, so, so we were acquaintances. Then it, at some point later on, my marriage uh, kind of ended. Then we ran into each other again. Literally ran into each other. <laughs> yeah. So I'd been married almost 30 years. Uh, once once the youngest child graduated, mm. my wife said she wanted a divorce. And oh, no. So, you know, we'd had years of counseling. So we, I said, okay, so we did it. So shortly after that, I literally ran into Lisa in the hospital. She was coming around a corner with a bunch of residents following her. And I was kind of, we almost bumped into each other. And so, you know, I said, did you hear? And she says, oh, yes, I did. And the chief resident who was with her said, we're going to go on up and, and uh, to this, to the next patients while y'all talk. <laughs> so, uh, so at that point, uh, we had a little conversation. Lisa said, well, you know, if you ever, you know, I said, you know, it's tough being single. You know, I got married pretty young. She says, well, if you ever need any help being single, give me a call. I said, oh. I was an expert at that point. I was 44 years old and had always been single. Um, so I think later that day I, I talked to my friend Rick uh, and asked him, I said, what do you think about Lisa? As Rick's wife chimed in and said, I don't think uh, you should, uh, I don't think she's a good match for you. She's too much like your ex-wife. And so... <laughs> And I took that to heart <laughs> at the time. And I think about eight months went by. Wow. Uh, I had pretty much decided when I got divorced that I was not going to get back in the scene and do any dating, that I just needed to chill out. Yeah. Uh, but after right about a year, I decided, well, okay, I want to do some dating. And um, I really wasn't thinking of Lisa until one day – one of my coworkers, who I hardly ever see, we were a big company, whose girlfriend at the time was Lisa's nurse. He was sitting across from me, and he said, Doug, do you know Lisa Kohler? And I said, yeah. And he said, she'd really like to go out with you. <laughs> and this was based on something that I guess his girlfriend had told him to next time he saw me to kind of let him know that. Hint, hint, hint. Yeah. So, so eight it, months later, he saw me. <laughs> you know, he saw her. So. so immediately that afternoon, I called her and asked her for a date. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I had tickets to a football game. and But she was on call that weekend. So she probably wouldn't work out. I might get called. And so I said, well, would you like to go out for dinner Friday night? And she said, well, I've already made plans with my single girlfriends, and I don't think it would be very nice of me to – yeah, let them down, and I said, "Okay," <laughs> but she gave me three different phone numbers, or pager number, her office oh, yeah. number, and her phone number. So finally, I got up the courage. The next week, I think by about Tuesday, after kind of picking up the phone and starting to dial <laughs> and putting it down, you know, doing that a couple of times, mm -hmm. I finally, I called, and I called her office number. And apparently some the regular receptionist wasn't there. Somebody was setting in and connected me to the doctor's office, which 
never, never happens. <laughs> and I was usually not at my desk either. Right. I was out doctoring somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so, but it was meant to be. So anyway, so I had um, happened to have, there was another home game and happened to have tickets to that. So I asked her and she accepted that time. <laughs> and we went to CFSU play uh, Colorado. And, and then we just kind of dated pretty much on and just yeah. grew from there. Yeah. And a year later, we got married. It's fantastic. Yeah. I think just hearing, I always try to reflect, you know, as we think, as we hear some of these stories and, you know, it's t- obviously tough to go through a broken relationship after that many years, but, but the Lord's kindness as well in, in bringing healing and also another person, right, to to share life with and to, to mend some of those wounded places is amazing. Who was really wondering why she was single all this long. Um, and we did. We talked about the Lord's kindness a lot when we were dating because mm-hmm. neither of us could understand this in the least. So, yeah, we, we talked about the Lord's kindness. We talked about how this doesn't exactly make sense. Right. But it is what it is, and we had the witness of multiple friends. Even even Rick's wife, Bonnie, came around after a while. <laughs> and but we had the witness of multiple friends, uh, multiple church leaders, multiple people saying, yes, this is a good thing. Because we did did go very carefully, Yeah. especially at first. I, I think I grilled him for half an hour after our first date just to make sure that there was any sense in continuing because mm-hmm. I wasn't about to waste the parts of my heart that I didn't really have yeah. a lot of spare to waste. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. right. What do you admire most about each other? Well, Doug is kind and Doug is patient and he can focus on one thing until he's done with it. Uh, I am often not kind. I'm almost never patient and I have difficulty sometimes focusing. I'm a generalist by choice. That means I like to do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And my mind is typically very busy. His mind is going in one direction. And if you need something concentrated on, he's your man. But he's kind. Mm -hmm. To a fault, he is kind and merciful. Lisa, yeah, Lisa is, um, Lisa, even though she won't admit it, is very kind. (laughs) Sometimes she won't admit it. Uh, and she is very focused outwardly. She, her heart is, is to help others. You know, I think that's what drew her to her profession. Mm-hmm. But she is, she's just a kind, loving person who wants to help other people. Mm. He also knows a lot of puns. Actually, he doesn't know puns. They just come out of him all the time, figures of speech and all kinds of things. So he makes me laugh a lot. <laughs> They may be bad jokes, but they make me laugh anyway. Yeah, they're they're, they're the proverbial dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like dad jokes are like a fine wine. They just get better the older you mm-hmm. get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to perfect my dad jokes, so I'll be I'll be asking you for some. This is actually the first time I ever heard of dad jokes. Oh yeah. Really? Really? Yeah. Oh, my wow. dad didn't tell jokes. <laughs> he was serious. Much, all the time. If it's a groaner, it's a yeah. it's a dad joke. That's oh, right. Okay. Yep. New term. So you guys moved up here um, not that long ago, had the house, of course, and started remodeling it. And 
think it was a relationship with a, a certain Shingler family that might have brought you to Missio. Talk a little bit about that. Well, our friend Larry and Mary, they had traveled away from our church, had left our church in Tallahassee to take up a job in a church in Orlando, and we had kept up with them and knew that they had resigned from that church and were, were living over in Raleigh, and he was looking for a position somewhere. And so we were praying for them and all of that. And then one day Larry calls and said, are y'all home? Yes. And as it turns out, they were on their way over here to have a talk with this church called Missio that we had never heard of before. (laughs) We had been looking for a church out in our area and had not really succeeded in finding one that we thought we would fit in well with. And so we started praying even harder (laughs) and Pretty much by the time he got here, I was pretty sure he would get the job. I mean, it was just one of those things I just knew. And we took walks in the mountains with them and all of that before the interview. And he came over here. And then we came here the very next day, I think, was a Sunday. He had talked with you on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And we came on Sunday because, you know, Larry is our friend. And we wanted to make sure that this place felt right as a place for Larry, too. And... Um, and we were checking you out so we could advise him whether he should take the job or not <laughs> if it was offered. <laughs> and we're still here, so obviously that was that yeah. was a thing of God. What's funny, I don't know that you know this, but <clears throat> I, I remember meeting you guys, and I think Skip and Lori Martin were with you that Sunday, and our other candidate was actually here that day. Oh, my. Yeah. I didn't know that. So he had come in, and I was actually, I feel like I might have been talking with him and kind of showing him around the building and then ran into you guys. And I realized, oh, I think, I think they know Larry. <laughs> <laughs> so it was quite, it was a little awkward for me in the moment, but. Uh, mm-hmm. well, uh, you didn't let on. No, well, good. The other guy was great, but Larry just blew our socks off and really glad that he's here and he brought some great people with him. So we had no idea. I mean, it was, we knew the Martins lived up here when we moved up here, but then the shingler showed up and it's like, wow, God had to do that. Yeah. Yeah. We did not do that. We didn't call them and say, hey, you should come up here and look for a job. Right. We had nothing to do with it. That was all God. Such a fun reunion. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. How do you steer each other towards Christ-likeness? Well, Doug gives me a good example to follow of you know, being loving and patient and kind and all of those things where he just he just does Christ-likeness. And so when... I'm kind of feeling like I'm running into people or I'm all elbows in conversation or whatever. I can kind of just back up and see what he's doing, and that's helpful for me. And he will, when I get anxious about something, he will remind me that it is not required that I worry about that. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not required. We can pray about it. <laughs> so that's always a helpful thing. And with Lisa... Here again, I just see I see um, I see the love of Christ in her. I see her uh, as she's she's very devoted to to God, and her her mind is 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 on those things, and she's also. But here again, her her desire to be a help to others. Uh, uh, to go, to be selfless. Mm. I think that's what I see in her. When are y'all most relaxed? What would you say your hobbies are? I know, Doug, you play music. Well, right now my hobby is remodeling an old house, <laughs> but I enjoy that. My working career was like 
40 years in the construction business, the last 30 of it being remodeling a hospital, but before that, building houses. And mm-hmm. My dad liked to tinker, so he, when I was young, he would take me out to his shop and we'd build things. Mm-hmm. He'd show me how to use tools. Um, so that's a, that's a fun thing to do. I like to figure out things. You, know, you had mentioned earlier that you'd saw that I'd built a bridge across yeah. the creek. I like to figure out how to do things. I'd never made an arched bridge, so I said I'm going to figure out how to do that. Yeah. So I like the challenge of figuring out how to how to make things. But music is also a nice hobby, avocation. I, I love, mm-hmm. you know, since a young age. You know, I was you know right after the Beatles. This is going to age me. Right after the Beatles came out, you know, when me and some friends have had a garage band going. I mean, it was a, it was a real garage band mm-hmm. practiced in the garage back in the early 60s. So I've always I just loved music, too. Yeah. And I mostly am relaxed at home. We have a stream down the front of the property, a stream down the back, and, and the sound of running water has always been very relaxing to me. I can go in the kitchen and just start cooking stuff, and that's relaxing, or I'll sit down and read a book or whatever. And Doug has taught me how to play the bass, the <laughs> upright bass, so that he would have someone to accompany him a guitar and two people singing is just not very balanced. So mm-hmm. we needed a yeah. bass. And so he made one because my parents, of course, being hoarders had oh, a, wow. ba- had a bass neck in the <laughs> umbrella stand. <laughs> like so, you do. Yeah, of course. Who doesn't have one Who of those in the yeah. umbrella stand? Yeah. And so there was a bass neck in the umbrella stand. And so he looked at a, a real bass and thought, Hmm. And then he used some wood that he had, rescued from the hospital it was the crash rail the stuff that keeps the heavy carts from running into the wallpaper yeah so the base is named crash rail <laughs> this is the name of my base oh that's fantastic is it fully acoustic like you must have done a huge amount of hand planing no it's not it's an electric base okay so it's just it's just a solid body yeah. uh, attached to a neck and oh. with a pickup yeah i'd love to see a picture of that i bet that is well you've seen beautiful. it at church yeah it's she's played it I've played in it parker's uh, oh, wow. Okay. It's pretty cool. If, I'm sure it just looked professional. It just looked like. <laughs> it's awesome. People do ask, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> One question we didn't get to, I want to kind of circle back to, um, who have been some of the major influences in your life, particularly spiritually? I think C.S. Lewis, one. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate in that the first church I went to in Gainesville had someone who taught solidly and i think that was very helpful but c.s lewis packer read quite a bit of them and then and then some just sort of people along the way yeah. you know the shinglers the mm-hmm. martins the martins literally i think the second or third time i went to the church in tallahassee it's like we have a small group are you coming <laughs> so so that's you know, i was in there a small group that they led for 15 years 20 wow. years long time so that obviously was a big influence on me. And I, I, I read other authors, like some of the contemplatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brother Lawrence, that was uh, the idea that you could be in the presence of Christ all the time mm-hmm. and, and be in familiar conversation yeah. you know, at all times, and particularly when things weren't going well uh, or when, th- when you didn't do well. I, I love his... Um, that's what I do always, Lord, if you were not with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that one statement, I think, well, you know, that's that's pretty true. <laughs> that's right. So that's for me. 
I think one of the things that's that really stands out to me just in hearing you guys talk about the Shinglers and Martins and those long-standing relationships. Obviously, we're a fairly young church and we're a pretty transient church too, mm-hmm. being that Asheville's a hard place to, you know, eke out a living in. And I all the time, you know, are seeing people who are here two and three years and gone. And um, I'm constantly kind of advocating for putting roots down and building solid relationships. And it's really neat to see, even though you guys have lived in different places and are sort of now joined back together, I mean, these decades-long relationships that have really grown and matured with time, and there's just like, there's no replacement for that, you know? And uh, it's really encouraging to hear about those kinds of relationships and what they've meant to you over the years. Yeah. And, you know, Tallahassee was a fairly transient town in a lot of ways, sure. too, because of the university. Yeah. Of course, mm-hmm. there were state workers, and once a state worker, of course, always a state worker. But the the university people would come and go through our small group, and, and some of them, you know, you still know them. Even though they've moved on, you still have those relationships because yeah. you were there at a very formative period of time in their life. So it's not hopeless if you have a transient sort of population. They sure. just have to commit while they're here. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we have to commit to them while they're here. Yeah, and that's so important. And I, I always try to tell people that however long you're planning on being here, be all in, you know, be here and be invested because... Yeah. Yeah, always thinking about what's next is not healthy. Right. Yeah. Right. I was in that mode for a long time, and I remember you putting a call out to the congregation if you're planning on staying in Asheville for one year, stay five. If you're planning on staying five, stay ten. And the older I've gotten, the more that I've come to admire and uh, long for, like the castle of long-term relationship, like this fortress of people that are around you and for you. You're not old enough yet. I know I'm not, but <laughs> my my grandparents, they had a group of friends that they had dinner, uh, Sunday dinner, like after church with for like 50 years before my grandfather died. And they called themselves the mates and they... The mates. <laughs> it's just like their life. And it, I love... Yeah. You don't have to explain yourself to people. Like if you... I've moved around a lot and moving to a new town, people don't know who you are. And it's it's wonderful to hear about long-term friendships like y'all's have. Mm-hmm. It can be good moving to a new town. Um, I remember when I moved to Gainesville that it was really obvious that I had an opportunity to reinvent myself a little bit. Sure. Because mm-hmm. I had gone to the same school my whole life. I started in nursery school and went all the way through. And Tallahassee's not that big a town. And so I got to reinvent myself just a little bit. And, and that was helpful. I could mm-hmm. leave behind some old habits and mannerisms and things that were not helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even before I became a Christian, it was obvious that I could be socially different because I wasn't in some box. So there are some things to be oh, said yeah for moving around, but it is nice to have those long-term relationships as well. Yeah. So as you guys reflect on your move here and and uh, what the future holds for you, where do you sense God is kind of growing and stretching you right now? I think we both have felt like there is a call to put down some roots, look around, see what there is that it needs doing mm-hmm. by us, you know, that that's something that's within our calling and skill set where we can become a part of the, the community at, at large and in the church in particular, but both of those. Yeah, we, um, one thing that we've prayed about pretty constantly ever since we bought a place up here 
is that that we would could become a part of the community that we could um, find and develop new relationships and that the, our home could be a place of blessing mm-hmm. for others a place where we can socialize and, and be a blessing so building community of becoming a part of the community not just somebody who lives lives on the old country road we yeah want, we want to integrate and we've we've been meeting some people and just with uh, being intentional intentional yeah uh, to, to to develop some relationships thank you how do you think God uses your specific weaknesses well I am a sort of hypervigilant counterphobic Enneagram six for mm-hmm. if anybody knows what that is. It means that I tend to, and my dad was in disaster planning, but so I came by it naturally, of <laughs> <It's> course. <true. laughs> you were so, born into it. I was born into quite it. Literally. Yes. Um, actually one of my schoolmates said that they didn't know that they had planned pregnancies back when I was born because disaster planning, you know, it's mm-hmm. a way to dig at your friends. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but um, so I can imagine and plan for almost any disaster. Uh, I can see trouble coming a hundred miles away, even if it isn't. And, but that makes me rather effective when I'm looking at people's health. Yeah. These are the risks. These are what, this is what you can do about it. So I can see trouble coming. Uh, I can see trouble coming relationally for people. Sometimes I see more trouble than actually comes. Mm-hmm. But over the years, you kind of learn which are the things you really need to react to and which are the things you really don't. So that kind of hypervigilant kind of always got my eyes out looking for what might be about to go wrong has served me well professionally speaking. It, it can be not so much fun interpersonally with people you like, but, <laughs> you know. I like my patients too, but socially it can be more difficult. But yeah, but in but in doctoring, it's a good thing. Yeah, you can really care effectively. You can, I, and people say, "How did you know to ask that question?" Because I'm afraid for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because I, I thought of everything. I try. I try. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, I think something that I've always seen as a weakness is I'm fairly. If I don't have a musical instrument in my hand, I'm pretty introverted. And also, just I think because of things that happened when I was brought up, I've, I've always been one to avoid conflict, to be the peacemaker. And, and I think God has used that and is using that more and more to be someone who is merciful you know, when people ask me what's my spiritual gift, I, w- I would say it's it's mercy. So God using my, what I would had thought of as timidity to really think about the other people and care for them. Mm-hmm. He also has a terrible time getting into a conversation because people don't give him two breaths to think about what he's going to say because conversation just goes on, which makes him a really good listener. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people always comment, what, he's, what a good listener he is. I say, well... <laughs> Did you take two breaths between any sentence? Right. Know, but for him to get in there. Are you a nine then? Yes. I was going to ask that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we love Enneagram over here. <laughs> I'm still learning. It's good stuff. Yeah. Well, we're going to move into a little thing we call the lightning round and uh, just a few rapid fire questions for you. So take it away, Peter. 
Favorite Waynesville restaurant? Sweet onion. Yeah, sweet onion. What kind of food is sweet onion? It's basic um, home cooking, I guess. But very well done. Yeah, meatloafs, fried chicken with gravy, trout. uh, So, what's the go-to order there? The trout. Yeah, the trout. Unless you're really hungry, then get the meatloaf. (laughs) Who's never really hungry? (laughs) I'm always really hungry. What's your go-to windows down music? Windows down music? Yeah, like you're in the car, the windows are down. Oh, okay. You're cruising on 276. (laughs) She was like, is my computer broken? What are you talking (laughs) about? Windows is down? Dun, 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 dun. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You can answer that one, honey. I like to drive with in silence. Really? (laughs) Yes. I put the windows down and that's what I'm listening to. Oh, that's amazing. I really, I I love bluegrass music and... um, Roots music, mm. so that's probably what I would turn up really loud. Yeah. Every now and then I go back to to seventies um, rock, but uh, great choice. Yeah. Can you name all the planets? Doug can. Okay. Um, Do you actually want him to name all the planets? Yeah. You just want okay. to know if he can. <laughs> yes, I can. Uh, <laughs> um, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Uranus, and the, and the non-planet um, Pluto. Pluto. Oh, congratulations. And then there's two others that I can't remember the names of that are... Pseudo-planets. Pseudo-planets. Yeah, or there's probably another name. Microplanets. I don't know. He could have named all kinds of stuff. <laughs> okay, cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great job. This is uh, off of this most recent podcast. What state would you be okay never going to again in your life? A state of confusion. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good answer. That was awesome. I would prefer to avoid the state of distraction. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all are clever. clever. Uh, And cilantro, love it or hate it? Love it. Love it. Correct answer. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. That's an extra 10 points right there. (laughs) But that's genetic. It, well, is it? All right. (laughs) And... The last question. You burst, burst his bubble. <laughs> if you got switched into someone else's body, how would people know it's you? The way you talk, your mannerisms, etc. Probably my mannerisms. Possibly the way I talk. I, my twin sister and I get confused with for each other frequently, just because of we talk in a very similar way. Unless you know us very well, people get very confused and. And so, and that's on over the phone. Wow. So, are y'all identical twins? Yeah. For me, it's probably the way I talk because I'm very kind of slow and deliberate. Um, I don't think I have an accent, but people say I have an accent, which I'm sure. <laughs> I've grown up in the South. Also, I think I would recognize his walk on almost, almost anyone. <laughs> we won't go into detail. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us today. I enjoyed hey, getting enjoyed to know it. y'all better hearing a bit of your story thanks for joining us on the vox pop today a few notes if you would like to be part of the vox pop if you'd like to share your story with us you can email voxpop at mdcashfield.org that's voxpop at mdcashfield.org thanks for listening have a good one y'all